Hi, James. Hey, Adam. What was your first computer? <laughs> How did I know you were going to ask me that? So the first computer I ever used in any significant way was a uh, TRS-80. Remember those? Oh, uh, it's yeah. also called Trash, right? Yeah, Trash-80. My mom sent me to a uh, computer summer camp one year when I was very little. And uh, we basically just played games on it. We didn't do any kind of programming or anything. Okay, so, how little were you? Um, I had to be probably about 10 years old, maybe, something like that. What kind of games were there? Uh, on the Trash 80, there were, I mean, there were pretty much text-based games, maybe some ASCII art here mm -hmm. and there. Uh, a lot of, like, you know, question response, like, you're coming up to a branch in the, in the path, which way do you go? Those kinds of questions. And I think there was a really popular one that was on TRS-80. I just can't remember the name. But, I mean, still good, right? For kids. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, it was awesome. Yeah. We get to play with the floppy disk drive. Oh, yeah. I was so, so you, you could, load, you could load the games with a floppy. Yeah. Yeah. So I had the five and a quarter inch. So it advanced well beyond the old legacy eight inch. Mm -hmm. So we were we were cutting edge. That was the summer camp. And, okay. So what happened after the summer camp? So you got your, your machine and started hacking or playing games. Or what was this? Your road to computer. Yeah. Right? Um, so the, the first computer I ever owned, I was get my parents bought me a, a TI-99 4A system, which was a, where I learned to do basic programming, um, typing in, you know, programs from like Byte magazine. You had to, or, or you um, wanted to? No, I, I wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. I asked for it. I asked for a computer. I didn't really know what I was asking for at the time, okay. but, um, and also, um, I had some family members that were much older. They were, you know, teenagers or early twenties and they were working on, um, they had a. They created this way to uh, to create color photos uh, from a black and white scanner, mm -hmm. where they basically put three different filters in front of the picture, and then they kind of merged it all together into a uh, color photo. So that was pretty cool. Um, I thought that was really interesting. So um, and they they kind of helped me get interested in computers and and things like that. So so you had no interest in, in um, games. So you know after the summer camp, you say you know enough with text based gaming. Now now it's start to to to, to coding, right? Yeah, I mean, like every every good you know computer interested person, I always liked games. But I didn't really have an interest in like coding games or, or creating them. I just liked to play mm -hmm. them. Um, I was more into like the networking between different computers. Like I had a BBS. I ran a BBS for a number mm -hmm. of years out of my bedroom. Um, so we were like sharing software and and stories, and you know we had message boards and things like that um, uh, over a dial-up modem. I think it was twelve hundred baud mm -hmm. was my uh, first actual modem. So, yeah, and then um, let's see, how, where did I go from there? Um, yeah, I started to do, I took a, a few programming classes in high school. Um, I actually learned uh, like um, two's complement mathematics in I think it was seventh mm -hmm. grade um, where we, and we had a bunch of apples in, the, in this Apple Macs, or I guess they were, yeah, official Macintosh mm -hmm. computers um, and learned how to, you know, the basics of computer architectures and things like that. So. So then I just kept going through it and studied uh, computers in college. I have a computer engineering degree, um, took a number of classes. Uh, I really liked the the intersection between like the hardware and software, which is I think how I ended up with my first job at Sun because um, it was it was neither hardware nor software, right? It was both. Okay. Uh, which so, which programming languages you learned, you know, in your journey? So you already said on the first computer it was the TI, what is it, TI-9, you say? Yeah, TI-99 slash 4A. I don't know, some model number. It was a really well, uh, TI Texas Instruments, mm -hmm. um, and it was one of their best-selling models, and I learned BASIC on mm -hmm. that one. Um, and then, I'm trying to think, uh, I think in, in mostly in college we used uh, C, C++, uh, I did some um, uh, Lisp mm -hmm. uh, as well as uh, Fortran, and I didn't really get into like Java and JavaScript till much later in my career. I think I think we used Java a little bit um, in my last year because it had just mm -hmm. been released like the year before I graduated college. So yeah, most of it was you know traditional C programming, Fortran. And what was your favorite language back then? Um, my favorite language back then, hmm. Probably assembly. Oh, really? <laughs> to, uh, yeah, honestly, I mean, I I took a computer architecture class, did really well in it. There was a lot of assembly programming on the um, Motorola, the sixty thousand. Was this? Yeah, sixty eight K. 
Um, did a ton of that. Was pretty good at it. I actually became a teacher's assistant the next semester in that mm-hmm. college, in that in that uh, class. And my primary job was to catch cheaters. Oh. <laughs> catch people like copying and pasting code and yeah but yeah it was probably my favorite because it was like you know there's no <laughs> there's no like it's it's just pure mm-hmm. programming and you see the bits go and you see you know the registers get values and it's very very satisfying to create a program that actually does something useful in assembly and after university you started at sun yeah so i got a job at sun um i was in the solaris qa department oh. mm-hmm. Um, we were basically doing, um, uh, certification testing for the different, uh, standards that Solaris mm-hmm. had implemented like POSIX and, uh, oh, what was the other one? Um, open, open Unix or yeah, Unix mm-hmm. open and a few others. And so we were developing and running tests mm-hmm. for that. And I was sitting in the same hallways as like, I don't know if you know, Brian Cantrell, mm-hmm. Um, who one of the inventors of D-Trace, um, Roger Faulkner, who invented the uh, the PROC file system. Had, he had my last name, so mm-hmm. I think that's probably how I got the mm-hmm. job. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I joined. I was in the Solaris group, and then I, I started to do. Um, I started to work on the uh, installation administration tools in Solaris, so like package mm-hmm. management. You may have heard of the SVR4 packaging format, kind of like RPMs of today. Mm-hmm. Um, or Debian, or you know, pick your favorite package manager. Solaris had its own. It's called SVR4. Based SVR was System 5, Release 4, mm-hmm. back from Bell Labs from forever ago. So we were working on some of the tools for managing packages and patches. Um, and, yeah. and you wanted to work so, for Sun Microsystems? It was more like accidental, you know? Uh, well, so it's an interesting story, actually. So Sun, so my I went to the University of Florida mm-hmm. in Gainesville, uh, the Go Gators, and they they have they had a CS department they had they still have a CISE department but Sun Microsystems at the time didn't typically hire from those like like it wasn't like a well-known school like CSU or Brown mm-hmm. or you know Stanford um, it just so happened that my hiring manager at the time was also a UF graduate mm-hmm. so he came back to the school to sort of give back a little bit and, you know give us a chance so I interviewed um, with Sun. I interviewed with, you know, uh, you name it back then. Everyone was hiring Intel, Microsoft. There's a bunch of defense contractors in uh, in Florida. Um, and, yeah, just so happened that Sun was there interviewing. So I interviewed and did well enough. Flew out to California, did another round of interviews. I read the big – I had a big, giant Java 1.0 book that I read on the plane. Um, and sure enough, in my interviews, I got, you know, show me how to do a linked list in mm-hmm. Java. So on the whiteboard, that, those kind of questions. So in yeah, so uh, I had not really used Java as I said; it just released a year before I graduated. So that was a fortuitous that I got to to read the book and get a job right out of college. But uh, it was not that. And this was before new linked list, right? Because right now you can say, okay, new linked list, and you are done, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's we we learned a lot about uh, algorithms and you know sorting mm-hmm. algorithms and how to program them in any language, really, mm-hmm. um, sort of the basic concepts. So, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that hard of a stretch to get to Java. And I, I'm pretty sure the people that were interviewing me had never used Java before mm-hmm. either. They were just – it was the hot new thing at the time, right? It's like it just released in 96. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so so I got a job at Sun. And you moved to California then? Yep, in Menlo Park. Um, I lived all over the Bay Area. Uh, but, yeah, at – as I said at the time, and, and you miss Florida, you know, or you prefer drive. California? So I mean, what? Um, I I think California is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very expensive to live there mm-hmm. at the time, and I had met my wife in college. Um, we were not married at the time, but she was also from Florida. So uh, we ended up. She ended up moving out to California with me, and then we got married a year later, and then you know spent five years in the Bay Area, but um, ultimately decided to move mm-hmm. back. Because we're both from here and we have family here as okay. well. Yeah. So, so you spent five five so, years at Sun Microsystems. So it was until two thousand one. Uh, I actually spent thirteen years at okay. Sun. Um, uh, it was, you know, as I said, I was really interested in sort of the intersection between hardware and software. That meant an operating system, and so that's kind of why I I chose that particular job. Um, but yeah, I spent thirteen years there. I didn't always work on Slayers. Um, in two thousand eight was when I first joined an actual 
Java uh, mm-hmm. group. Um, this this is the beginnings of the Java Enterprise System or Jez as we mm-hmm. called it, uh, which was our basically our stack, right? Our middleware stack from Sun that had an app server, you know, a, a name, uh, an identity server, we had a portal mm-hmm. server as well, um, and a bunch of other, you know, some business business process automation uh, software in there. So I joined that group working primarily on the installer for it because it was just this massive, you know, collection of like 13 products that had to get laid down on the system. Mm-hmm. So we, we wrote the, the first Java installer for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what you did at Sun? So you just... Yeah, so then uh, I think in that 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 was that was in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. That was well beyond when the uh, the end was near for mm-hmm. Sun. Um, so we started to we started to basically right size or started to attempt to right size the ship. And at the time, they we had this product uh, portal server that had reached you know sort of end of life. It was um, it was not necessarily growing, and the team was sort of getting. Uh, a little tired of doing it so they wanted to do something different i wanted to do something different so i switched in and became sort of the product architect for that portal server which also at the time we decided to end of life the sun version and adopt a an open source uh, java portal it's called LifeRay. Mm-hmm. you may have heard of them um, and so we i was part of the team that sort of did that integration so we produced a product from sun that was backed by the LifeRay portal mm-hmm. server um, and co branded it, co-marketed it, co-sold it um, with with LifeRay and, and just into Sun customers for a couple of years. And then Oracle came along and changed everything. The interesting part, uh, the interesting story about LifeRay is they actually implement or develop the entire LifeRay in a church. So yes, they, it started out in yeah, the church. Yeah, the developers yeah. Of, of Portal, they, they, they worked in the church, you know, they implemented the LifeRay. Yeah. This is actually, yeah, interesting. Yeah, my first trip to uh, out to out to California because at that time I had already moved back to Florida. I moved back in, like you said, 2001. Um, so my first trip out to California, the the office was actually upstairs at their church in like the the not the basement but the equivalent, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the mm-hmm. attic of the church, and they had a bunch of people just everywhere. It was pretty interesting. Okay, so they knew that actually Sun uh, used uh, LiveRay. So um, LiveRay was still very yep. popular in Germany. But I had no idea that actually uh, Sun also used that. So then you quit Sun, I guess, right? Yeah, well, Oracle acquired Sun, and they already had four portals at mm-hmm. the time. They had the BEA, they had Oracle Portal, they had WebLogic, and they had one other one. Um, and so now they have they had six, right? They got two from Sun. They got our legacy Sun one, which we still hadn't EOL'd, as well as the LifeRay one. So they kind of put all of those into sustaining mode and we ended up, you know, just kind of, just kind of helping it along, fixing bugs and whatnot. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't a great fit culturally. Like when, when the acquisition happened, there was a question about whether it was going to be Oracle, <coughs> excuse me, or IBM that was going to acquire Sun. And we all kind of wanted IBM to acquire mm-hmm. Sun because um, we felt it was a better fit, but um, it ended up being Oracle. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really a great, um, like a great cultural fit for me. So um, I spent six months there, I think. Um, and then at the time, my manager from Sun was who was actually working at LifeRay, mm-hmm. ironically. Um, and um, I uh, went over and joined uh, him at LifeRay. So I worked at LifeRay after that. Oh. Um, so I had some experience with the team. Yeah, so it's fortuitous. I didn't you that. So why I'm asking about Sun, because I know your name, James Faulkner, and I don't know whether it was from Sun time, whether we did something, you know, with maybe a little bit less fish or something like back then or later at Red Hat. So uh, whether we met actually back then at Sun, at the Sun time. You know, it's very possible, Adam. <laughs> it's very, yeah, yeah. very possible. Um, yeah, COVID kind of erased a lot of my memories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> very possible. So... um. Okay, so then you worked with LifeRay. How long then? So I was at LifeRay for about five years, and I was the open source community manager. Okay. So I was responsible for, you know, of course, working with customers, but also um, championing the open source LifeRay mm-hmm. uh, portal and doing, you know, meetups, um, doing, um, you know, industry events, talks at industry events, things like that. Um, and also developing the community, building different programs for, for developers to contribute uh, in different ways because we didn't just need coders right you need Mm -hmm. like translations there was a big translations team um there was a security team where we kind of when we when we discovered a security vulnerability this team would be in the loop on that early on um as part of the process of 
you know, responsibly reporting and fixing issues mm -hmm. and then rolling those patches out. So we had a number of different teams um, that uh, really encouraged open source community members to contribute back to LifeRay, which was really great to see because that was sort of the lifeblood of the of the product was the open source community of mm -hmm. it. What I remember, I hope uh, it was LifeRay because um, I had to perform a code review and I had the oppo opportunity to see you know, parts of the LifeRay. And what I remember is like a genius developer who implemented a lot of stuff. And there was like, um, I think yeah. SGI was lots of layers. So they had the layers over layers, like yeah. interface, you know, implementation and everything was like, you know, it looked like almost generated code. And this was mostly I've just a view developer, so I was actually stunned that there was a this amount of code they wrote that consistently, and uh, yeah, this is what I remember. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was a generator in there. I know what you're uh, referring to is a service. Um, I think it was called service generator or something Maybe. like that. So Brian Chan is and was the uh, the chief architect of that, and yeah, it was very consistent in the way that things mm -hmm. were done in LifeRay Portal. So every service had a you know all the same kind yeah, of class exactly. names, um, and this is the service thing is what was generating mm -hmm. that. Okay, so and, yeah. and and then what happens? So it quit at, at LifeRay. Yeah, so I worked at LifeRay for five years, as I said, um, and you know I think it had, it my my. The work that I did was, I think, um, getting to a point where I was kind of doing the same things over mm -hmm. and over again, and I kind of wanted to branch out and look mm -hmm. at some different uh, career paths. So I just happened to to have a um, an opportunity at mm -hmm. Red Hat um, back in 2016, um, and yeah, I'd, wor I'd worked with Red Hat a lot in the past, it was, even when I was at Sun, right? I think mm -hmm. uh, Red Hat was was a J Boss was a competitor at the time to to Glassfish mm -hmm. and the the Sun Java system application mm -hmm. server. Um, great naming, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I was really familiar with JBoss. I actually attended the Red Hat has their flagship event every year called Red Hat Summit, and I actually attended that in 2015 when I was at mm -hmm. LifeRay, and I got to see some of the the um, interesting people and and culture um, in Red Hat, and so that kind of helped make that decision as well. So I had an opportunity to join uh, as a product marketing manager. Technically, when I was at LifeRay, I was a community manager, but I was reporting up through the marketing mm -hmm. arm. So I had some marketing experience. Um, and uh, so this opportunity to be a product marketing manager for a specific product, as opposed to an entire community, I thought would be an interesting career choice. So I kind of wanted to give that a whirl. So I joined Red Hat in 2016 as a technical marketing manager in the um, in the middleware group. Whitefly and Jabos. So, Whitefly and Jabos, right? Or Jabos mainly. Yeah, it's, it's primarily, J yeah. Every one of our middleware products at the time, I think, was uh, was marketed or was branded with the JBoss term because they had, Red Hat acquired JBoss in 2006. Mm -hmm. so they got like the app server, they got a web server, they got you know identity, they got mm -hmm. um, you know a number of different products with the JBoss moniker, mm -hmm. business process management. Okay, so, so so what was your job? Just to promote JBoss? Yeah, primarily uh, building. So the the TMM or the marketing manager position in a product's business unit is to support primarily to support sales right so building demos and workshops for sales uh building enablement material supporting new releases as they come out mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and you know enabling our, our sales field to understand the product and understand its capabilities and benefits to customers and be able to translate that into you know meeting the customer need whatever that might be so that's that's a that's the primary job the other job was to you know obviously to do like developer evangelism um, going to events, doing doing talks, um, doing podcasts, things like that. Um, and then last one is to sort of build internal and external product champions for your for your given product. So we have a, a number of customers today at Red Hat that um, you know there's there's one person or a handful of people inside of our customer base that are sort of Red Hat champions, like not just for our middleware, but also for things like OpenShift and and Red Hat Enterprise Linux, of course. Um, and so our our job there is to also build the, them up and give them the tools that they need to uh, to continue to benefit with Red Hat technology and, and apply it in different use cases in their given companies. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I used to Whitefly actually a, lo a lot and Jabos as well. So um, it was a yeah. huge success story actually. The uh, Jabos and Whitefly, <laughs> no kidding, because uh, it was the first application server who actually competed, you know, with the commercial ones. So this was the the, the story. Yeah. And uh, so and what is your you know what happens between you know, back then with JBoss and now? So you're still working with JBoss or more Quarkus or what's? Yeah, so we are. So we are. Um, yeah, so we, the 
the focus is is of course remains on our application development product line, and that includes JBoss and now new things like you mentioned, like Quarkus, um, as well as how it integrates with the rest of the Red Hat portfolio. So we're not an island. We don't exist just to sell JBoss. Um, you know, we exist to to build an inclusive community of Red Hat technology technologists and um, and and showcase how our entire portfolio works mm-hmm. together, not just one or two products. So we do a lot of work with um, showcasing integrations with like RHEL and with OpenShift and of course with Ansible as mm-hmm. well. Um, and so, you know, cause like Red Hat has been, uh, historically it's an infrastructure company, mm-hmm. right? We started with RHEL and we are really good at selling RHEL or taking RHEL orders. Um, but you know, nothing happens in a, in a business without applications. So you can have the best operating system on a planet, but with no applications, you're going to get zero benefit from it. So we we're focusing more on the app dev space and showcasing how Red Hat's platforms are able to solve that app dev challenge and not just in writing programs or whatnot, but actually delivering them to production safely and consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's and, and a, the middleware component of that, whether that's JBoss or whether that's Quarkus um, or whether that's, you know, Fuse or uh, Threescale, any of, you know, all of our middleware products, they all contribute to mm-hmm. that end goal of, of Red Hat as an application delivery platform. And this is your job right now as well. Yeah, that's so, correct. So what, what yep. is then, you know, the ideal Java stack at Red Hat? So if I would like, you know, to pick all the Red Hat products, you know, I would like to build let's say, a small microservice which uh, sells gators, let's say, alligators in Florida, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah. and uh, like a pet store of, um, in Florida. So, um, <laughs> I, I would say uh, Quarkus or Whitefly, then, you know, what is the commercial offering for Keycloak? I would say uh, Identity Manager, right? So, so what would be the ideal stack? Ansible for provisioning? So, I'm just curious. What, yeah. what what you will you know suggest you know to get fully supported? This is what I'm interested. Not open source, uh, of course, open source, but fully supported commercial stack from Red Hat. Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. So it all starts with it, it, with the operating yeah. system, right? So Red Hat Enterprise Which Linux. Version? No, um, that's your that's your base stack. Uh, we're currently version mm-hmm. nine, um, nine dot. I don't know what the actual no, patch nine, nine is level enough. is okay. at this point, but. Nine is enough, yeah. Um, so Red Hat Enterprise Linux is that is that base, and that you know that kind of marries a lot of the hardware vendors with software vendors, mm-hmm. um, or with you know ISV software that's certified to run on RHEL um, and or potentially in containers. And we'll get to that in a minute. But you know, Red, we we do a lot of work to make RHEL really consistent and really uh, able to support a number of of different platforms like infrastructure platforms like the cloud and our hardware vendors, we do a lot of work to make RHEL consistent so that everything else above that can, you know, can vary depending on customer Mm -hmm. need. Um, So I'll give you, you know, a classic example is like a RHEL customer who maybe they're not interested in containers, right? They don't care about Kubernetes. Um, They just want to run their banking software on RHEL. We're super happy to do that. And they're super happy with RHEL because, you know, it's Mm -hmm. consistent and it's secured and supported and dot, dot, dot. So all starts with RHEL. Um, Then, you know, an ideal stack for the microservice example, the pet store that you mentioned, you know, you'd have a way to deliver that application. You have a, first of all, you have a way to write it. So you'd need like a, if it's a Java framework we're talking about, then I would obviously, when you say microservices, I immediately think about mm-hmm. Quarkus, um, you know, given it's, it's, you know, stunning performance and the developer productivity that comes along with that. So writing a Quarkus app and then getting that into production is where OpenShift and Ansible mm-hmm. come along. So, you know, OpenShift is your, is your orchestration layer, obviously, but it also has capabilities for building and delivering uh, through pipelines, you know, containers to production or to test or to dev environments. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a range of developer tooling, um, you know, like uh, online IDEs based on VS Code. So VS Code would be the preferred it, IDE right now, right? So in my opinion, mm-hmm. yes. Um, there's a lot of support for lots of things in VS Code. And, and Microsoft, you know, they, they spend a lot of money making sure that that thing is solid and consistent. Yeah. Obviously, it integrates well with the Microsoft stack. But uh, from an app dev perspective, I think there's a lot of value there. Um, it's not light years ahead or behind of like IntelliJ. Um, but I would... It, it's. In my opinion, it's very easy to use. And, yeah, and, I can um, confirm that. So yeah, actually today well. I use you know, yeah. a Visual Studio Code with Quarkus without OpenShift, yeah. just you know, bare metal, and it just worked. 
yeah, add Quarkus extension, you know, and you get the extension and uh, works well. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. now, and that's my personal preference. But like I said, right, we have support for IntelliJ. Sure. We have a support for even traditional Eclipse. Um, you know, you yeah, yeah, but VI there's no in, in Visual Studio Code. There is the Red Hat extensions, which are based on Microsoft extensions. Yep. So that you get the entire stack of plugins there. So I was curious. Okay, and yep. Ansible is for setting up uh, open for uh, OpenShift automation, right? So, so yeah, historically Ansible was for automating those data center mm -hmm. operations, like deploying JBoss mm -hmm. or even deploying Open OpenShift itself was deployed exactly. with Ansible back in the 3.x heritage. Um, so yeah, Ansible's great at at automating those those small tasks, but now it's also uh, moving into you know doing things like uh, introducing um, event driven, essentially event driven programming, where you can have you know Ansible playbooks that are that are triggered by events, and you can you can kind of set up a, a whole flow of of actions that happen depending on you know event input mm -hmm. whether that's a developer checking in a piece of code or you know some threshold being met in some machinery somewhere um, you can do a lot of a lot of cool things with event driven ansible um, and then of course you, you may have seen the uh the the announcement last week at ibm think with their their uh, watson mm -hmm. x where they've rebranded their watson mm -hmm. line um, one of those components is the Watson Code Assistant, which we actually demoed. Um, a friend of a colleague of mine, Katie, was on stage with the CEO of IBM demoing this capability for uh, Watson X to, or Code Generator to generate Ansible code um, based on input, like human input. Like, give me a playbook that does XYZ. Mm -hmm. um, or you start the beginning of a playbook and you give it a name of, like, deploy this application to production server four. Then you hit tab and, like, fills out this entire playbook with the variable values already set uh, based on the the company specific playbooks that they use to deploy, it was pretty interesting. Um, so Ansible was really you know branching out into the so the Watson X was trained on you know the closed you know Ansible for, how to call it um, yeah projects and and this is why it works as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the so they it's called the foundational models um, which are used to train basic knowledge and then you can make that better by feeding it your you know, your corporate Ansible playbook set mm -hmm. by pointing at a GitHub repo and it just ingests it all and then figures out what it is and, and processes it so that when you then make a request later on saying, give me this playbook to do this company specific task, it will be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Which is really so, interesting. Yeah, what cool. I thought, you know, the, the future of AI or future, uh, the useful nature of AI mm -hmm. would be if I could point the AI, you know, to my code, to my repositories, it will learn, you know, my patents, and I could use my own patents and then refine them, for instance, right? This is really yeah. interesting because right now I use a GitHub Copilot and sometimes, you know, sometimes it worked, but, you know, in 80% of all cases, the code was somehow useful, but I had still, you know, to change a lot because it produced, yeah. you know, like chatty Java code, so it was not really efficient, so I didn't like the code, but it worked. But, uh, yeah, then I deactivated that because I said, like, okay, come on, it, it was not nice try, but I would wait, you know, a little bit, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We've, we've, we've been experimenting with that with, with Quarkus as well. We've been uh, having it create, like, basic Quarkus programs and see what kind of best practices it, it, uh, it, it gives you out mm -hmm. of the box. In some cases, it's fine, but in other cases, it might not be so fine. Like, we, added, we asked it to generate a uh let's see i can't remember it was something like we had a, we had a tomcat app and we wanted to you know have the equivalent written for quarkus and it basically spit out like a it uses like the mm -hmm. servlet um mm -hmm. api and it's like that if i were to re be if i were to rewrite an application that is a servlet based application in tomcat today i probably might use something mm -hmm. different in quarkus something that's more mm -hmm. native and you know but it just this is a, we did this experiment with chat gpt mm -hmm. it just doesn't have the, the the knowledge yet necessary to put us all out of jobs yeah i i think <laughs> the problem is no lots of java code out there is just not outdated yeah. it is somehow too formal it is not modern enough i yeah. think it will if it will scan the internet in five years it will be different but right now you know the old layered code with lots of you know uh, plumbing is just uh, dominant on the internet and this is what ChatGPT learned yeah it'll be really interesting to see in five years what happens because like if everyone starts using chat gpt and and, and uses the generated code from worse. it as it is right it's just going to get worse it's yeah. just going to be like bit rot over time i saw a funny quote i can't remember who it was uh, earlier today um about chat gpt it was like uh in order for chat gpt to and I'm paraphrasing here, but in order for ChatGPT to successfully write a program, 
the designers or the, the, the customer needs to be able to give uh, accurate requirements. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he said, we're all safe. Yeah. Like, if customers can't, they don't even know what they yeah. want. So. But uh, interesting uh, side note on the entire AI and ChatGPT and stuff like that. I think you have to be, you know, it's almost like autopilot in a car. You have to be extremely careful and you watch, you know, entire entire time the road. So if you generates the code, you have to you know, say, okay, is it good enough? Okay, you have to be extremely focused. Then you be you can be hyper productive. But you have to, I think you have to be a really good programmer, lots of experience to know whether the code could work or not. Otherwise you get lost because it will generate yeah. you tons of code and no one will understand what happened, right? Because uh, if I'm really interesting. This is, um, you remember, you know, the trend to, um, offshore back then, you know, there was a new rope where uh, say, okay, we we just you know create this pack and someone will implement th that, and 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 it never worked because uh, you know it, yeah. there was uh, lots of information got lost and you got the code back and no one understood what happened, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that I think the the job of developers and programmers are safe for another several generations. Even safer, I would say, uh, if if you're interested, <laughs> right? So I think um, there will yeah, be, exactly. and maybe you know, a, a short, a code to call it, the, the, um, you know, a, a, a dist distortion of, of the force, right? And and then uh, and then everything is back to normal or even better. So this what 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 can happen, right? But it's still interesting, still yeah, interesting. Yeah. So um, okay, yeah. so so we already covered Ansible, and what's interesting is the event-driven stuff, which fits well to the cloud. So because the entire cloud yeah. is event-driven, so you can react to events and then automate, you know, what happens to the after the so like more like a pipeline almost, right? So, so if this event happens, exactly. then this and this and this, on on commit to that. Very interesting, uh, interesting idea. And then OpenShift, which is uh, nicer to use Kubernetes. So I don't get why someone would like to use Kubernetes, you know, just plain. So I would say OpenShift or Wrench yeah. is the way to go. And I, I like OpenShift a lot. I still like it. And uh, if I have you no... Know, so maybe what's OpenShift is like Kubernetes with some, you know, opinionated Kubernetes, right? So you have Docker registry already. You have the ingress controller yeah. already working and you have nice uh, command line interface. So I, I really liked uh, OpenShift, actually. And so, yeah, I think it brings mm -hmm. in about 50 different products or projects, open source projects into there, not just with networking, but also like you said, pipelines and like Keycloak is there, identity management, right? Keycloak is there. Yeah. Keycloak. The, so you know, the Red Hat uh, official name for the supported version is the Red Hat build of Keycloak, or it will be named that very soon. Red Hat build of um, Keycloak. Mm -hmm. Just like we have the Red Hat build of Quarkus. And oh, I, I, was it not like Red Hat identity manager? One day, one day. So there is an identity management product. I'm not too familiar with it at Red Hat. I believe it, it started and is primarily run on Rel systems. Okay. Um, that now OpenSSO, or sorry, um, Red Hat SSO, mm -hmm. uh, the the productized version of Keycloak is, um, you know, it implements this, a similar kind of thing where you you can have mm -hmm. like, you know, your identity uh, database with your users, and then you can mm -hmm. have like federated single mm -hmm. sign-on for your different APIs. Um, then also does like social sign-on with like Google and okay. Facebook. But and what I'm curious, Keycloak, like you read that version of Keycloak, and this would run on OpenShift, right? So if there's like a, um, do you have like, like yes. um, how is called? Not orchestrator. What's the name in, in, in Kubernetes? Uh, operator. Operator, exactly. Yeah, Kubernetes operator. And it will yeah, run Keycloak out of the box, so it will cluster it properly and it will run and, and a patch. Okay. Yeah, nice. that's right. That's very similar to our other middleware products like JBoss, CAP as well. We have an operator mm -hmm. for that. Um, and that will just kind of set up the um, the automatic clustering and graceful shutdown. If you have a you know in, in flight transactions and you shut things down or you scale mm -hmm. down, um, they can also do auto scaling. It's as actually well. a brilliant case for Kubernetes because you know for 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 application developers, Kubernetes is terrible if you have to use it directly. You know, r yeah. with all the YAML. But uh, for 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 you know for you as a platform provider, it's just, uh, great because with the operators you can you know have like you know install exe. You can just you know drop yep. something and it works. Then a streamz right for Kafka. Yep, streamz for Kafka. Is it like operator for um, Kubernetes for Kafka, right? Yep, streamz is the operator for uh, for Kafka. Yeah. Okay. There is a Prometheus built in. Is it right? <sighs> yep, yep, um, and I. I, I believe there's an operator for that mm -hmm. as well, um, but yeah, that's that, and you can use that for both uh, metrics on the cluster itself as well as your application okay. metrics. So your your open telemetries and things. Is like Yeager that. integrated? You know it? Uh, yeah, the distributed tracing. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's available. I'm I'm not. Uh, yeah, actually, it is integrated with into OpenShift as well, and you can again use it for your applications. So this actually great story. So you get your own little cloud which belongs to you right so you get the, 
Yeah, the observability stack is is pretty well flushed out with mm -hmm. OpenShift, which is awesome. Early in the early days, it was only used used for cluster uh, metrics and telemetry and observability, but now it's starting to be available for application developers as well. So you don't have to bring your own Jaeger, you bring your own Prometheus. You just drop a Kubernetes object mm -hmm. with you know a small amount of YAML, and you'll just magically mm -hmm. get an instance that you can start using. And now we know the unfair question. So what about uh, something like Postgres? Do you have a, a story there? So could you just pick, you know, Postgres and find out operate and run it OpenShift? Uh, yeah, you can. Um, we So there's a whole library of certified operators mm -hmm. and certified uh, container images, and Postgres is one of them. Um, Red Hat's not a database company, so we, we, we certainly partner with, you know, all of yeah, the sure. popular databases. Some of them we prefer more than others, but um, yeah, we, we can support you know a number of different types of databases, Mongo and SQL Yeah, but Server, you know the, the Postgres uh, very popular one. It is always the question of clients, you yeah. know, which how to run Postgres on OpenShift. Yeah, that's the one I always use too as well. And there's an operator for that. It's actually it's even easier than that. When you log into the OpenShift mm -hmm. console, there's a you know a big plus button, and you can just say add a, a, a Postgres database. And it what you will it. suggest? Which operator? Or what to to run Postgres? Um, I if, if there's an operator available, which I believe there is, I'm mm -hmm. not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure there is, I would use an operator okay. before I would do it do it myself. Yeah, sure. Because mm -hmm. it handles all of the you know operational aspects, mm -hmm. and it's very easy. And it also, it's like if you change a configuration out from under it, it will undo mm -hmm. that, which is awesome. So you can minimize the configuration yeah. drift. And you get uh, with the, I think, Red Hat satellites, you know, the patching for everything, right? So there's like uh, the software is patched, you know, uh, from from outside, like a cache is called satellite, right? Still. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's Red Hat satellite for, that's primarily for uh, telemetry and, and patching of RHEL mm -hmm. itself. Um, OpenShift also has uh, the capability of different streams that you can subscribe mm -hmm. to. Uh, in air quotes, um, so that you can get like a stable stream, or you can get you know last you know up to up to date like um, you know unstable changes if mm -hmm. you want. Um, so you can kind of subscribe your systems to those different streams. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's easy to keep keep your OpenShift deployment up. So to date. I think we covered the entire stack, right? So we covered you know the uh, the the load balances already built in. So we had Kafka with StreamZ, Postgres with the built-in operator, Prometheus, X-Ray, OpenShift, Ansible for automation. Even you know event-driven automations that we could do on overload, for instance, Ansible could start new nodes, right? This would be. Yep, and then and beyond that, when you you start talking about like multiple clusters, like not just one OpenShift cluster, but say you have a fleet of you know a thousand clusters, mm -hmm. that's probably on an extremely high end. But you know what's what's the story there? Like how do you manage and how do you deploy new clusters? How do you start and stop them? How do you communicate between clusters? And that's where or products like their the ACM, the Advanced Cluster Manager, based on the Open Cluster Manager project, mm -hmm. um, which allows you to define policies. Uh, to you can roll applications out using a combination of ACM and Argo mm -hmm. CD or OpenShift GitOps, as we call it, um, and that's really really useful for you know rolling out multi multi component applications across multiple clusters. Because mm -hmm. once you start getting into that scale, you can't do it with you know, uh, a couple of bash mm -hmm. scripts. You really need to have automation and, and have automation in a way that's sort of Kubernetes mm -hmm. native, aware of Kubernetes objects, aware of the reconciliation loop of operators and things like that. So it's very, it's uh, it's a very good way to do, you know, high, larger larger scale automation of applications as you deploy mm -hmm. them out to, or out to multiple different um, environments. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, there's then the question is like, okay, so now you're deploying to a thousand clusters. Now you've suddenly made your attack surface huge. Like you've got multiple clusters running all kinds of code. Like how do you, how do you secure mm -hmm. that? Um, because back in the days of, you know, monoliths running on a, on a data center VM, that's pretty, I wouldn't say easy, but it's, it's pretty straightforward mm -hmm. on how you'd secure that. When you start, you know, branching out into multiple cloud providers, maybe some edge devices here and there. Like that's where it, the security story gets really, really mm -hmm. complex. And so, um, you know, we, we actually acquired a company called Stackrocks a few years ago um, that has this uh, product that basically does security monitoring and policy enforcement across multiple clusters. And so that is something you would definitely need in your stack. And the preferred stack from Red Hat, of course, would be OpenShift and uh, the advanced cluster security. And, and uh, is Stackro Stackrock uh, open sourced? Um, that I, that's a good question. I believe so. It wasn't when we, when we acquired them, but I 
pretty sure that because it's uh, in... this is interesting. Because what Reddit does, it <laughs> acquires software and then open yeah. sources it. So this is actually an interesting yep. story always uh, to watch. And and um, how we can imagine, you know, the uh, policy enforcement. So I mean, what it does exactly? Yeah, it is open source. So yeah. So just first of all, it is we did open source it last year. Um, I just want to make sure because I know when we whenever we acquire a company, that's always the first question. Yeah. Always without fail, and and in the time I've been at Red Hat, the answer was yeah, always yes. Exactly. We we have a plan to do it. Just give us yeah. time. So yeah, that that happened. Um, so what was the second question? Uh, what I can imagine. No, I'm oh, Java developer. So what yeah. means in policy yeah. enforcement? So what happens exactly there? So there are some standards out there that I'm not super mm-hmm. familiar with, but they're like NIST mm-hmm. standards mm-hmm. and a few others. Um, and those standards specify, you know, obviously uh, what it means to what a policy, how do you, how you define a policy? Like, what does that mean? And so in implementation terms, it means things like you can, or you, like the simplest one that we use in demos, cause it's like mm-hmm. out of the box is like, you have to have this particular operator always installed on every cluster. Okay. And so if you go and deploy a cluster that doesn't have that thing, then the policy manager is going to re- recognize that in a short amount of time. And, and you can either set it to fix it or just set it to like inform and, and mark a cluster as like out of mm-hmm. policy. If you set it to fix, it's actually going going to go in there and install that operator. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do the same thing with namespaces. You can do the same thing with like cluster limits, like the memory and CPU limits and things like that. Um, so it's very easy to uh, to be able to define these policies. And there's actually a little GUI that can help you construct these policies in there. It's more like opinionated so. best practice enforcer or something like this, right? Yeah, exactly. So there's like a, it's kind of dumb, but there's like a little drop down and it has like 12 out of the box policies that you can use as sort of starting mm-hmm. points. But again, these are based on standards. And so you can, you can always write your own and, you know, implement, import those into the tool and then apply those across your cluster as well. And you can define how it gets applied, like which clusters, like based on like labels mm-hmm. or, um, or attributes of the cluster or anything like that. So it's very flexible. Another question because, um, so uh, I use Jenkins a lot on OpenShift and uh, the Jenkins is yeah. really well integrated with uh, OpenShift. There was like a specific flavor which you can install uh, and it worked actually really well because you know it, you could what you could deploy from Jenkins. All the plugins were already there. You know the uh, security identity was already solved. So uh, will yep. uh, Ansible replace Jenkins or Jenkins will uh, or is still you know what's what's the story there? So uh, no technology ever truly no. dies like. Yeah, it's sure. always like additive. So we always see but like what an it will story, do right? in so a Jenkins fresh project, in a, in, in a greenfield project. Still, yeah. you know, use Jenkins or more Ansible. This was the. So, well, I would actually use um, pipelines like Tekton okay. um, because that that can do a similar job, right? It's like a it's a it's a CI solution, mm-hmm. um, and it can build. Uh, you can have you know pipelines that build your projects on your cluster or on some remote worker, um, and then you can store those in your enterprise container registry. And then deploy those from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Tekton is very powerful and, and as flexible. It, um, it, I don't know that it has the same number of plugins as Jenkins, um, but it is a you know truly Kubernetes yeah. native project, and it's the one that that OpenShift prefers. Okay, because you know the most uh, the mo- the most interesting plugins on OpenShift for Jenkins were the uh, OpenShift integration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, but like I said, nothing ever dies. So it's it, we still support it. Um, we have you know we we have a number. Of, we have a huge ISV ecosystem on OpenShift, and Jenkins is part of that mm-hmm. as well. Um, so there's there's you know there's sort of competing solutions with different mm-hmm. components. Like there's an alternate you know pipelines thing with Jenkins. There's an alternate service mesh. Uh, there's an alternate you know. No, I'm just so curious. No worry. Yeah. If you say yeah. Tekton. I'm both, so it means a Tekton yeah, ships with, with similar integration like Jenkins, right? I don't have to care about the yeah. uh, identity, so it already uh, runs in the in yeah. a specific it's, role. So this is the most important thing, you know, yep. because otherwise it gets messy That's, with you know the credentials and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's built into OpenShift from the get go. So when you when you run a a, a pipeline that runs you know in a particular role, which is initialized when you installed mm-hmm. OpenShift, and you can of course customize mm-hmm. that. As well, so it's very flexible, and it uses the same um, you know RBAC uh, concepts in the rest as the rest of. Oh, very good, exactly. This was the yeah. another killer feature of of um, how to call it, uh, OpenShift extended Jenkins. This is what I. This was the yeah. built in Jenkins, which I use all the time. <laughs> okay, and yep. and now uh, you did something strange. Uh, you you migrated JBoss or even Quarkus to Asia, right? You helped with the migration. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so we. 
so with EAP, so EAP and Jakarta E in general, right? It's a mature and well-known mm-hmm. entity, um, well-known market. Um, so we have a lot of customers that have been running JBoss for you know two decades almost, close to two decades, uh, maybe maybe some more. But um, so lots of customers running in data centers, and now you know in the last five years they've we've started to really see an increase in mandates for them to move to the cloud. So we wanted to to make our mature products like EAP available to those customers as they're moving because we want to obviously keep them as customers, uh, but we also want to you know keep keep Java uh, first and foremost in enterprise developers' minds. So we want to make our products easily consumable in the cloud providers like Azure and AWS. Mm-hmm. Um, so we now made EAP available um, on Azure. Uh, and AWS mm-hmm. as well. So you can consume, you can pay as you go. You no longer have to buy, you know, a traditional software subscription. You can pay, I think the last price I saw was something like 18 cents per core per hour. Um, and you can run your applications on on AWS or Azure. We're also looking at Google Cloud platform. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have support for IBM Cloud, obviously. Um, but yeah, so EAP is available there. Um, now that's a traditional VM-based uh, offer. Mm-hmm. So you can SSH into the machine. You can make changes. They are persisted. Um, you know, it's it's just like running a VM in your data center, mm-hmm. um, but you're running it on Azure, and you're able to use your committed spend. That's another piece of this puzzle: is that with these cloud mandates that our customers, and I'm guessing your customers as well, are getting, they are also coming along with, hey, we 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 dedicated you know 10 million dollars of budget next year for Azure, so we have we need to spend against that. And so if your products aren't able to consume that, then you're not going to be able to sell them into that customer. So we want to make sure that these committed spend programs and the cloud providers are enabled with our products. So we did that as well with EAP. Um, and then we also, um, uh, back in the, back before Kubernetes, right, we, we talked a lot about platform as a service mm-hmm. or PaaS solutions, like Cloud Foundry had one. They actually did pretty good. Um, their challenge was that it was very, very limited to like 12-factor apps only. And so a lot of our customers thought Cloud Foundry was pretty cool, but they couldn't really move any of their existing apps over because it was this limited thing. So, so uh, but with EAP on Azure, we did want to make it available through their PaaS. So they have this PaaS called Azure App mm-hmm. Service. And it's, as far as I know, the only major cloud provider that provides, essentially, you could call it like Jakarta EE as a mm-hmm. service. And so you can have, um, and we work very closely with like Reza and, and the rest of the guys from Microsoft, Ed Burns as well, um, to make EAP available through their paths. And this is a really great option for customers who just want, they, you know, they, they don't have huge config, configuration requirements, not very complex configurations for their Jakarta apps, uh, but, and they also don't want to fool with like managing the app server itself. Um, maybe they have an app that's been running for 10 years successfully, but now they have to move it to the cloud and they don't want to have to manage it on the cloud themselves. So we made that available through Azure App Service as well. So it's a, and it also integrates out of the box with a number of other Azure services like Azure App Insights. Mm-hmm. So if your uh, your application generates metrics, which e, uh, JBoss apps do out of the box, then you can start getting telemetry very easily out of the box with, uh, with that solution. So it also integrates with like their databases as well as other databases like Postgres, um, and with um, uh, their uh, their database, sorry, their message queues. So they have uh, JMS mm-hmm. support on Azure directly, which you can then wire into your application. So it's a very nice solution, turnkey solution for Jakarta EE. In fact, you may be familiar with the new Jakarta EE starter mm-hmm. site that was just launched a few weeks ago, uh, maybe a month ago. Um, that's actually running on JBoss on App Service. Mm-hmm. So it's a good use case mm-hmm. for that. It's like a, you know, it's a relatively simple app, right? It generates mm-hmm. you know starter applications, um, and it's a great use case for uh, for a PaaS with uh, Jakarta EE. So. What's interesting is um, so you know on premise you have um, OpenShift, which is Kubernetes. On Azure, you choose you know to use Azure App App Service, which is excellent choice by the way. So what I don't understand yeah. you know to run Kubernetes in the cloud because Azure is already a cloud and Kubernetes is a cloud and running a cloud <laughs> in a cloud is a little bit you know what what, what I compare it yeah. always. Some clients back then ran you know Spring in Whitefly, and I say you are all crazy. Why are you doing this? Now we have you no know, <laughs> two completely independent dependency injection frameworks in in one container. Why are you doing this? Either run yeah. you know Spring or run Whitefly, but not both at the same time. And this is the same. You know, I never got the idea why someone would like you know to run 
Kubernetes on 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 Azure or AWS, unless the, you know they already invested in operators or whatever. So there is an obvious choice, right? But if you starting right. on greenfield, I would say Azure App Service or Azure Container Apps would be actually the way to go. So um, what I'm curious yeah. how you did it. Uh, you used the Bicep programming language. You know it. You know to provision the entire yep. stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that Bicep is used in our VM based okay. offers. On Azure App Service, they have their own like I don't I don't know if I could call it proprietary, but their own fabric mm-hmm. that sits underneath. Um, it's container based, um, so they have a container, some rudimentary container. Well, maybe rudimentary is a, a strong word, but it's not Kubernetes as mm-hmm. far as I know. Um, but it is a container based thing, um, and so ultimately your application is running in the container. <clears throat> but your that surface is not exposed to developers, nor should mm-hmm. it be, because if you're if you want to use it as a true paths. Mm-hmm. You know, you shouldn't have to care about that the underlying infrastructure being used there. Okay, so let's say we have our uh, alligator uh, pet store in a war, and we would like you know to run it on Azure App Service. Mm-hmm. So how this would look like? So what is do actually? Yeah, so just like um, just like let me think of a good analogy. Um, you know, normally you would you would start up a Jakarta mm-hmm. EE server like JBoss EAP mm-hmm. on prem, and then you would drop your exactly. war file into some directory. And it would get you know deployed. So in this case, instead of you know running it yourself, you're basically going to order a copy. You're going to order an instance of JBoss on mm-hmm. App Service, and what that's going to do is deploy EAP and start it up mm-hmm. for you. And then you'll have like it's represented as a first-class entity on the Azure mm-hmm. portal, um, and you'll have endpoints that you can connect to. Um, you can you know you can download log files from EAP. Um, you can kind of get at the guts of the AP, and now it's it's effectively your management console. Mm-hmm. You know, it's JBoss EAP has a built-in yeah. management console that's essentially disabled um, because you're using App Service as the management console to control like number of instances mm-hmm. and um, um, and things like that. So with your with your with your the next phase then to deploy the actual application to this running instance is basically to upload it effectively putting it into a directory but um, Microsoft has abstracted that into their so you use the developer tool of choice so you can there's a CLI there's mm-hmm. the the AZ mm-hmm. CLI um, AZ web app is the command you would use AZ web app mm-hmm. deploy and then you point at your war file and it would basically upload mm-hmm. that into uh, JBoss and and initialize and run the app and then you can access it at the uh, the app mm-hmm. endpoint uh, you can also use the IDE extensions uh, for VS Code. Um, that's a great mm-hmm. choice because there is a complete Azure um, uh, plugins for VS Code. And from there, you could basically just right-click on your WAR file and say deploy to this particular app service. Mm-hmm. So that's an easy way to do it. Um, a third way is to use Maven. So there's Maven integration. If you um, add a, a dependency to your project, you can or add a plugin. To your Maven uh, Palm file, you can then deploy through that, and it will ask you like the name of the of the of the resource group, the name of your application, what version of Java do you want to use, what version of EAP do you, you want to use, and probably most importantly, what machine SKU you want to use. Right? How many CPUs? How many? How much memory do you want to use? Mm-hmm. And the more memory and CPU, obviously, the higher the price. But um, it's a nice interactive way of deploying your application to uh, to App Service. Do you have to know you know the uh, SQs up front, or you can change it later? Uh, you can change it later. Yeah, there's so that the SKUs are are um, are collected into what's called an App Service mm-hmm. plan, um, and you can change that um, on the fly as well if you want to save money or because whatever. it would be a great um, job for Ansible, event-driven Ansible, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because, absolutely. And app service. Yeah, because uh, you could actually couple this with uh, Asia Insights, and depending on the load, you can say you could just start and st- or or add more or less on our CPUs to it. Yep. Mm-hmm. You could. Uh, app service actually has a built-in uh, mm-hmm. scaling in and scaling out, so or up and down, however you want to say it, um, based on that load or based on time of day or something like that, where you can start adding and removing instances, and. Uh, the other good thing about um, some recent work we've been doing, when we first launched this, we actually launched this last year, but it did not have clustering mm-hmm. support um, because we did not have the logic in place to deal with scaling down in particular. Um, and so we now have not added that in the latest release, and we're going to be um, re- releasing that, very, I guess, uh, messaging that very soon, announcing it very soon. The way you, the way App Service gets new features, it's a, it's a bit of a, a lengthy process. You can't just throw a switch and then magically everyone 
across the world gets it because it's a huge business for Microsoft. And so they have lots and lots of customers on App Service. So to roll out a new version of App Service or, or to roll out a new version of EAP with a different feature set, um, it takes a month or two to get it rolled out globally because yeah, of the rolling sure. nature of that update. So yeah, but that's so that's available um, today or, or very soon. The clustering capability mm -hmm. and that was a big yes. Getting down indeed is a challenge because what you have to you know the question is what happens with already existing connections, right? So you have to wait until no exactly. one will like, connect to the, to this and, node and transactions. Yeah, yeah. so yep. it's not that easy actually. It is not that easy, and that's actually one thing that the operator, the EAP operator on Kubernetes, handles mm -hmm. today. So that's sort of replicating that that a little bit. Um, but App Service has that built-in capability. Mm -hmm. um, because yeah. um, on OpenShift, what I remember back then is uh, it, it just, you know, scale depending on CPU on the load. But uh, what you could do is you could have a smarter, you know, um, how to call it, uh, scaling because uh, you could yep. expose um, microprofile metrics or Prometheus metrics with business metrics. And OpenShift could, you know, use the business metrics, which is uh, more meaningful because you could say, you know, Yep. Up to you know if there are more than ten orders per minute, let's say, then scale up, and regardless yep. how what the CPU is doing, and this is what I thought you know with Azure App Service because then you could use Ansible, but I don't think you know that Azure App Service is capable to look into the your business metrics, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'd have to go look into that because I I know there's a way to do custom metrics. I just don't know if it's if you could like write basically like a Bash script that say run this script and if it outputs you know more than one mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. scale up something like that where you could have a custom mm -hmm. look uh, I, I don't think that's there but I have mm -hmm. to look but yeah it, most of most I think most people are looking at at scaling based on like CPU or memory was the AZ web app right. deploy um, Jabos became serverless right if you think about this because <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, because the war is a very similar to Asia functional lambda I mean there's just the business logic you just push it somewhere you can you can you can um, you can dedicate the um, amount of compute. You can say configure how much uh, processing resources you need, and um, it is yep. how it should be. Um, I don't know what they remember. Sun Microsystems, Sun announced the Sun Grid back then. It was like you know the predecessor of the cloud, and I was really disappointed. Yep. Because okay, hey, what's going on? They really have application servers. What I assume is this is what you know, what you are uh, um, introducing right now. I thought something like an Azure App Service. You know, I would say. Just run your Sun uh, Sun application server, and I would just you know copy the war over. My expectation is that you will care about that, and instead the Sun Grid was like you have you know to package a zip, which was the entire application without you know any any separation between infrastructure and business logic, and you have to package. And this was like two thousand five or whatever, and um, yeah, this was. Um, so a question I regarding we've mm -hmm, learned a lot. Sorry, we've learned a lot yeah. since then. Uh, and I assume yeah. on AWS are using Fargate, right? Uh, like for yes. JBoss? Uh, no, it's just on the Azure AWS Marketplace deployed. Ah, VMs. VMs. Okay, I thought this was uh, ECS yeah. or Fargate. Is what my assumption because no, no. That, so that our AWS um, offer is not a PaaS. That is a traditional marketplace VM based okay. offer. Because this would be also easy doable yeah. on on ECS Fargate. Yeah, I'm sure it's possible. Um, oh, also on Elastic Beanstalk. Yeah, I don't yeah. remember that. Mm -hmm. I think that's yeah. all around. I actually deployed. I got LifeWay running on that at one point. It's pretty yeah. interesting. Lots of interest in that. So um, what Elastic yeah, this is, traditional is just doing is just more like um, almost like Ansible, right? So it just you know orchestrates the entire AWS infrastructure behind yes. the scenes, and um, yep. the ECS is a little bit more lightweight. And um, AppRunner could be interesting. I think it's called AppRunner, right? Uh, yeah, yeah AppRunner from, from from AWS. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that can run Java apps. Anything that can run Java. And app, by the way, App Service can also just run bare, you know, basic Java like a Quarkus microservice mm -hmm. or a Spring microservice. Mm -hmm. Um, but the EAP is, you know, obviously for a different type of workload um, than your traditional. But for Quarkus, you know, could be also interesting. Azure App Service, the same story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That would be a lot closer to a serverless pattern than uh, than I would say for EAP. But yeah, Quarkus, uh, Quarkus makes a lot of sense. Not there necessarily, as well. James. Now, so you know thing... why? Because in 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 Whitefly, if you think about this, you know. The war is just, you know, my business logic. There's almost no code, no dependencies, yeah. and the infrastructure is somewhere else. With Quarkus, we have our entire runtime in the jar. So it is maybe, it is lighter weight, but from the you no know, serverless perspective, I would say even the old war is closer than Quarkus. I yeah. would prefer Quarkus, but from the, you know, serverless, how to call it, philosophy, I would say uh, the war and, and Whitefly fits a little bit better.
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Logically, it does fit better. It's just the the startup time yeah. and memory, I think, is not what you would expect from a serverless solution. Yeah. Hey, uh, with Qualcomm, you we, could even do you know crazy things like you can you submit you know the jar and you could create the Graal VM and then run it you know behind the scenes. So you could yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely cool. could. absolutely yep. And in all these solutions, we we basically you know it's it's a it's a continuum of how much control do you want? Like if you want ultimate control, you know go for the VM option where you're in complete control of everything, including patching the op, the app server. If you are just want a, you know, like effectively like a serverless thing that you just mentioned, that's where app service comes in. And then Kubernetes is somewhere mm -hmm. in the middle. Uh, oh, uh, great question. Control. Are you patching the, the JBosses running on Azure App Service? Yep, we are. We do. We will. And and, and um, is <laughs> it like you have a maintenance window where they are just patched or how it is working? So the way it works is when you deploy EAP on App Service, you get to choose whether you want to be pinned to that specific okay. version or you want to float it. If you float it, then, you know, Every time you reboot, if there's a new version, you're going to get the new version. If you pin it, then we'll never change the version out from under you until. And, you're ready. and when you reboot, I mean, when, when you have to reboot the servers? Like, well, like if uh, if there's a um, like if you scale up okay. and down. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So if, if there's any need to reboot, like there's all obviously there's a manual reboot mm -hmm. button, um, but um, anytime the the thing boots, it would get that new version if you if you so choose. I would imagine, and I I would highly recommend if you're running in production to not use that option. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, in manually um, control when when a new version gets patched for you. I, I actually don't know because uh, yeah, you you say this, but the other other possibility would be you know to 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 behave like uh, the chaos monkey. You know, you say okay, uh, j just you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, test it all the time, and constantly reboot yeah. you know the application servers, and then this is a part of the testing strategy. Could be that's true. That is very true. And there's a, there's a capability on App Service for uh, deployment slots where you can do things like that, like testing mm -hmm. ahead of time before you swap it mm -hmm. into production um so you could you could set you know one 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 blade or whatever they call it to uh to auto update every mm -hmm. time and use that for your chaos monkey but or you could do it in production you only live once yeah. right <laughs> interesting actually um it's, it's it's a great service so maybe last question what is the minimal configuration for 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 the jbos like one cpu or half cpu and then 128 meg ram or what is it yeah, that's a good question. We actually did some testing because we're looking at. So right now, when you when you when you buy, you have to, you have to buy. It's mm -hmm. not free, and we want to add a free tier. We want to the so Azure has this mm -hmm. free tier, and it's very limited. It's like you get one gigabyte of memory, and you get sixty minutes of CPU per day. So you're not going to run a production server on there, but we wanted to make sure that it was that it would fit in that. And so we did a lot of, of testing. Well, not a lot, but a reasonable amount of testing to make sure that like a Hello World app would fit, and, and it certainly did fit. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 180 megs or 200 mm -hmm. megabytes um, of memory. And I think there it was given one vCPU mm -hmm. or maybe half the vCPU. Mm -hmm. The vCPU is not as important. I mean, obviously, if you have less vCPU, it, it's going to run slower, but it's yep. still going to work. It's the memory is, is what the limiting mm -hmm. factor is. So the, in the smallest machine you can get is one gig. So that, that's plenty of space. Yeah. And can you actually have one gig with one v vCPU? Is it possible? Yeah, okay. you can. Because yes. uh, you know, on in some, for instance, on Fargate, it is uh, if you would like to have you no know, um, CPU, you have to buy it with memory. You cannot just you mm -hmm. know combine uh, the any amount of memory of RAM with CPU. So right. there is like you know relation between uh, CPU and 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 RAM. Yeah, and. Now, Azure, their free tier is exactly that. It's one gig and one C CPU. But I don't know if it's like software limited or if it's, you know, I don't think they have a one gig, one CPU mm -hmm. machine. That's no, no, sure. Workload, so and what is the larger configuration, the, the largest configuration you can get? I mean, it can, <laughs> I don't know what the largest is. It's massive. Okay, so like it's how many CPUs? Crazy okay. high. So we, so when you do, when you, when you run that, we have a recommended we have like six different uh, machine sizes, and I think the largest one we recommend is sixty-four gigabytes and like eight vCPU okay. or something like that. So it's enough for so, but you can go you can go larger alligator store. Yeah, yeah. Thank exactly. you. It was a nice conversation, and we cover a lot of ground. Actually, we were really efficient. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Great talking to you again, and thanks for having me. Yeah. On. Thanks. Uh, anytime again. So I should reinvite you back. You know, talk about you know, um, uh, Quarkus and and White what happens on Red Hat. It's like a uh, you no know, periodic yeah. sync. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Where people can find you on the internet? Where is your work? You know, Twitter and and your your. Uh... Yeah, so I'm I'm on Twitter, uh, S C H T O O L or Stool. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, 
Sounds like a yeah. German word a little bit, doesn't it? Um, but it's not. It's, it's actually was a word that was invented by my German roommate um, when I was working at huh. Sun. Um, I don't even know why he said that. He's just randomly shouting German words to confuse me, I think. But awesome mm-hmm. guy. Um, and so, yeah, that's my that's my Twitter handle. Um, I'm, 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 I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, most of my work is working with our customers, mm-hmm. so I don't get out as much as, I, as, as I'd like. Um, but I do occasionally post there. And we, we have a developer blog as well that I'll post that on Red Hat, on developers.redhat.com. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you.